with your permission, my Lord Jesus Christ. From the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. And another great portent appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child one who is to rule all the nations with an iron rod. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God. Brothers, as we are in adoration of our Lord, the beginning of the month of May, dedicated to Our Lady. We use this passage, perhaps the most famous passage in the book of Revelation, to give ourselves context. For always the Church has interpreted that passage as referring simultaneously to the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, our God and Lord, and also to the church herself, gives birth to divine life and souls, with whom the dragon is forever at war, and whose place is in the wilderness. To keep some of those elemental contexts in our heart, O Lord. Divinity, birth, motherhood, be a child, a son or a daughter, the wilderness. When I was living in Rome, the place where I lived was only a couple blocks away from a famous location in Rome called the Piazza Navona, very ancient hot spot in the city of Rome. And currently there are lots of it's very, very beautiful. There's a beautiful fountain in the center. The, it's the site where St. Agnes was martyred, and so the church is built over the site where her martyrdom, and it's a gorgeous facade and all that. And 
cafes and restaurants and shops. Well, as you would walk in the, the north entrance into the square, there's a toy store there. And in the last months when I lived in Rome, what caught my eye when you walked in the toy store and right in their big display window was a huge stuffed animal of a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And around it was unicorns and little stuffed elves and trolls and mythical things. Now, I didn't go into the store to ask the owner what the intention was. And the price tag on the big stuffed dragon was incredibly expensive, so I don't know who on earth would buy it. But the very notion was dreadful. The sign, now again, I, I assume the person who was selling it either had no faith or just had no idea what they were doing. Perhaps they were satanic. I don't, I don't know. But it's what happens when a soul no longer comprehends that if it is to follow Christ, it's in, the, it's in the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness with the woman to hold deep together in our hearts that that Marian theology, Marian spirituality is deeply, elementally tied to the Christian life as he is scourged and bleeding and suffocating and can barely spit out words. One of the last things Jesus Christ says to the beloved disciple is, Behold your mother in his death pangs that are our life spasms. We receive a mother in the blood and the sweat. See, it connects elementally to birth. Looking out, I, I think a number of you men have children. I've been very grateful never to see the, the, you know, I've seen it on video in health class. But like to be there when a child is born. It's not pretty. Right? No one, right? No one has on their mantelpiece a picture of their firstborn daughter as you know, she's crowning at birth. That's a little gross. It's after, you know, she's all dressed up in the blanket and things like that. But when is the knowledge of motherhood and fatherhood? Oh, it's, very, it's intellectual. We're aware of it. Women feel it in those pangs. But in that moment, the blood and the sweat, well, it's in that moment where we become the sons and daughters of Mary. We are the children of God when he rises from the dead. But of course, Mary is not divine. So she is not given to us as a mother in some great and glorious act. She is given to us as mother in the blood and the sweat, and the pain. Because the great, huge beast with the seven heads and the ten horns 
various faces and places throughout history, various violences, great and subtle. We keep that all tied together, aware of ourselves in true and authentic Marian devotion. And I'm going to read a bit from an essay by a theologian, now dead, uh, named Hans Urs von Balthasar, a little section when talking about Marian devotion. Between Christ and the Church, he reveals the underlying unity of God's ways, the way for the final form of relationship between God and man is prepared from the very start in the created form of man. The final relationship will not be possible without woman, neither in God's becoming man, for man exists only as male and female, nor in the final relationship between the triune God and man, in which the relationship of male and female must also be perfected. According to the second account of creation with its deep symbolism, Eve is created from Adam's rib and is his helpmate, but for whom he would remain imperfect within the kingdom of animals. Only in her can he be what he is, creating, procreating man. And so too, according to St. Paul, the woman is the doxa, the glory of man, whose own creative glory, on the other hand, does not come from him, but from God. In order that God's word may become man, the helpmate must give evidence not only of a vague faith, but of one which itself is fully incarnate, which embraces body, soul, spirit, in which she, Mary, puts at God's disposal to receive his word. The fact that, as it were, a body can believe is the new truth at the threshold of the definitive covenant. Humanity does not achieve this by his own strength and efforts, but God's grace gives it to him in the pre-redemption of the mother in order to mark out the totally new beginning which occurs within the course of the generations from Adam. And so Joseph must stand to one side, and the divine spouse of Israel must take his place in the event of the Incarnation. The Word of God, which had, as it were, for a long time been on its way from God, and which takes bodily form in the God-man Jesus, would be completely confused in its nature and in the message it announces if this man had two fathers, if he had owed his existence to two, one in heaven, one on earth, he would no longer be the Son, who as such is identical with the Word. In order to arrive at the notion of Mary's virginity, one does not need to look beyond the bounds of the Bible 
toward any Hellenic myths of the gods. Everything in the Old Testament has been preparing the way for this final transcending step. From Sarah to Elizabeth, God miraculously makes fruitful, through in some cases physically impotent men, barren wombs. The final perfecting step he retains for himself in his Holy Spirit. This is no isolated magical act, but lies precisely along the axis of the Old Testament covenant theology, leads over into the theology of the Church as a physical, visible bride of God, in whose virgin womb the Son of God, in the sacraments, and in proclamation, always wills again and again to become man. This accounts for the parallels between Mary and the Church, which are elaborated in the Church Fathers. At the beginning, Mary is thought of more as a symbol of the Church, and then more strongly as her deepest origin and unsullied kernel. At that point in the center of the community whereby God's grace, that was truly achieved, which as sinners, we are all quite incapable of achieving, yet which had to really be achieved if the church was to be more than a second synagogue and it must be more if incarnation really occurred. Every son receives from his mother. Mary the mother wanted to be the pure handmaid of the Lord. The son, he who was our Lord and Master, wanted only to be among us as one who serves. He comes over from the Father to the side of men and in consequence to the side of the servants. And in addition to this, he allows all the guilt of the world to be laden upon him as the servant of God. How then could it be otherwise than that the helpmate, the mother, the bride, the archetype of the church, pierced by the sword, should take her place anywhere else than under the cross. Indeed, what else could she, the definitive Eve, do but take upon herself in her feminine role the birth pangs of the first Eve to the end of the world and become a feminine principle above time itself? which the apocalyptic seer sees crying out in her pains, Mary, the Church, who to the very end brings forth the children of God in pain. We can only hint at all this here. But one thing may be added by way of the contrary of our thesis. 
where the mystery of the Marian character of the church is obscured or abandoned, there Christianity shall become a bizarre unisexual thing, a homosexual thing, that is to say, all male. This would not be the true church. And so, brothers, to acknowledge our Marian devotion, as something in which we bring forth the true, again, supratemporal, beyond time itself, wherein the Virgin Mary stands as the archetype, the icon, the new Eve, and cannot be anywhere. That is why Holy Scripture reveals her at the foot of the cross, but does not talk about her on the day of resurrection. Well, that is easy to know. Son so near to his mother in all his years, of course he saw her at the resurrection. Everyone knows this. Everyone comprehends it. Standing there at the foot of the cross only to be given away as one who serves, that is the deeper mystical heart. And so perhaps you, like me, have a very beautiful statue of the Virgin Mary somewhere in your home. A lovely rosary that sparkles in the light. An icon of the Virgin Mary, well painted or drawn or printed. In our devotion, she cannot be some static thing, not some belligerency that we use to justify anything, but rather our mother, given to us in the birth pangs of life and of death, one whose heart beats as the handmaid of the Lord, who will forever be in the wilderness until the end of all things. That's why I never say my rosary in my recliner at home. I won't forbid it on doctrine, but it just doesn't seem quite right. I don't know about your recliner, but mine is not the wilderness. I can tell you that right now. So, Lord, keep that deep in our hearts. That, yes, we will walk with Our Lady because we have devotion, because we have affection, because she is sweet and kindly, because we have good memory, because we like the songs, but above all, because you have made her the heart of the redemption of all humankind. the Father, 
draws near to himself the mother. And we are lifted up for she is not God. She is a slave like us all. It called in that special unity, obedient to it in faith and service, and whose heart beats with the love of the divinity, knowing all her children are in the wilderness until the end of all things. And so we shall be their Lord, because we are not a club. We are not a community. We are not a gathering. We are the family of God. Clubs are nice. The clubhouse is a nice place. The family is messy. It takes a whole lot of work to get everyone cleaned up. And then we do it like five or six times a year, Christmas, Easter, family reunion. And the rest of the time, we're in the wilderness because we are the sons of God, children of the mother, who is the handmaid of the one who came not to be served but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many, whose children are forever made war upon by the great dragon, whose power is but vain and foolish, as long as we are ready to be in the wilderness, loving sons of the Father, who are deeply devoted to our mother.